This week on the Back Table Podcast. And then, you know, we, we start usually at five or six in the morning and go on 10, 12, sometimes 14 hour days. And we come back and she looks at me, you know, she says, well, um, I, you know, I have a, a guest bedroom in the basement, but it's flooded. So I have my office, Susan, you take the office and Isabel, do you want to sleep with me? And I looked at her and I'm like, what am I going to say to the to Brooke Spencer? I'm like, with pleasure. So I, <laughs> I decide <laughs> that I'm going to sleep with the great Brooke Spencer. And, you know, now we're like, you know, two girls at a slumber party. Um, however, I still haven't gotten over the fact that I just admired the, you know, the pants off of her. So I couldn't really, you know, calm down. So all night she's like sleeping next to me and she did, you know, we're in her little bed or whatever. And, um, and I can't relax. Cause I'm like, what if I make a weird sound or I like kick her or something, she, you know, she won't want to be filmed or maybe she'll never talk to me again. So finally fall asleep. And then I feel this soft touch on my shoulder and I go, Oh God, what's happening? Welcome to the Back Table Podcast. Back Table is a resource created by IRs for IRs to connect with your colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. Download our free iTunes app to access all previous episodes of our podcast, blog posts, and procedure-specific content to help you grow your practice. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm honored today to welcome Susan Jackson and Isabel Newton from the Interventional Initiative. With us today, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank it's a you. pleasure. So tell me this, how did the two of you meet and, and get started working together? So this is Isabel. Uh, so our, our meeting was rather serendipitous. Um, I was finishing fellowship and my mentor, um, probably more appropriately, my sponsor was um, Dr. Steve Rose. And at the time he was um, a, an officer for Western Angio and he invited me to give two talks that year. And I did. And I guess they were having meetings, and maybe Susan can pick up here. And he had an idea for what we needed to do to address the need in IR, and I'll pass the baton. Yes, an, another role I have is executive director of the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society. And so it's a, it's a great annual conference where there's a lot of networking and, and great ideas uh, for interventional radiology. And as Isabel mentioned, uh, Dr. Rose, who was then an officer really was wanting the uh, Western Angio to focus on documenting the history of interventional radiology. And it's such a rich and innovative history that has really changed the course of medicine towards minimally invasive procedures. And he felt like there were a lot of pioneers who um, we could learn from and uh, that we should take this opportunity to interview those. And so he brought Isabel and I together to, to talk about um, what that might look like. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, um, this is Isabel again, you know, interventional radiology is a pretty young field. And so whereas other fields might have, you know, luminaries that date back a hundred or more years, our luminaries, a lot of them, you know, are still alive or have been recently um, alive. And so um, Steve Rose felt this kind of urgency and pulled me in thinking that um, because he thought that I was a pretty good fellow, that I would also make an excellent historian. And I think that's just a testament to his kind of, um, you know, just support of me. But I hadn't taken history like since high school. So I told him, I said, you know, I don't really, I, I don't, I can't do this history thing. But, and I really think that, you know, making a yearbook for the sake of other IRs is not something that's going to really help us. I think what's going to help us 
is to promote IR to the public. And so I kind of, you know, worked on this project by myself kind of silently for a while and didn't make much progress. And then Susan independently had an epiphany that changed everything. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was actually working um, in another field as a chief marketing officer, and we just happened to have an opportunity for our company to be featured in a an episode of America Unearthed, which is on the History Channel or was on the History Channel. And this um, this episode came across my table to kind of look at it for branding, et cetera. So at that moment, I was watching that. I, I sort of thought, wow, what if we just made a documentary of the history of interventional radiology or some sort of subject matter around interventional radiology and nothing like that really had been done. Um, and perhaps this would give us a lot of visibility and an opportunity to, to reach out to the public about this wonderful field. Um, so I, I reached back out to Isabel and, and we kind of regrouped and, um, and got to back together to sort of start planning. What does that look like? Yeah, so this project that was going to start as something like a coffee table book fortunately got rescued by by Susan's uh, bright vision and became this documentary um, that was initially funded through Western Angio and their vision and um, an enormous amount of trust in two people who had no filmmaking experience but a lot of passion. <laughs> so Isabel is, of course, an interventional radiologist and brings the medical perspective to our documentary, uh, which is an obvious contribution that we knew she would make when we prepared and planned our pitch decks early on. However, she also contributes so much more. She's an expert at conveying complex medical jargon to the public through storytelling. And as it turns out, she just has an amazing creative side and has made significant contributions to the direction of each one of our episodes. As co-creator of the series, she's involved with writing treatments and casting, um, which I feel has been spot on to date. Um, as co-writer, she does a significant amount of script writing. And as co-director, she interviews and guides our movie star physicians in talking head interviews uh, to be sure they're connecting with the, and communicating key messages to our audience. Uh, we both sort of participate in post-production edits regarding the narrative arc and content decisions. And with each episode, I'm just so amazed at Isabel's vision and what she brings to the creative process. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that we work with an Emmy award-winning production company and our editor and co-director in the film um, is also film school trained. His name's Oscar. We actually call Oscar the magician. So uh, he really brings uh, an amazing side uh, from the film side to this project as well. It involved an enormous amount of research and education, and Susan is nothing short of brilliant. Um, she has never met a challenge that she cannot surmount through education, um, and so there are those educations that you go to school for, and there are the other ones that you obtain on your own, and Susan, through grit and determination and her own intelligence, was able to outreach and find people for us to talk to throughout the industry. So we talked to documentarians, um, producers, people who have um, started on-demand platform companies, you know, all across the industry. We went to conferences that specialize in documentaries and television. And through this and over the years, um, 
we learned more and more about the process, um, but we were rooted and were quite fortunate to have some instincts that pointed us in the right direction from the beginning. What One real fun story is um, we, we literally stalked Tom Neff, who founded the documentary channel uh, many years ago. He was kind of a visionary in, in how to bring document, documentaries into uh, the public viewing. And finally, he agreed to have a conference call with us. And uh, he was so gracious with his time. He was, in a, he was traveling from Nashville to Chattanooga, Tennessee one day for a couple of hours in the car. And he talked with us the entire time and sort of gave us advice and, and just was kind of a cheerleader for yeah. us. And, and it really was uh, motivating to, to have that conversation. We had many conversations like that. With, right. And this, when we talk about advice, it's like as you know, mundane as um, how to make a budget, or as kind of esoteric as how to name your documentary series to work best within social media or to catch the eye, and and so to have those kinds of stewards, you know, people oftentimes when they approach projects like this, just are kind of passive and expect things to come to them. That's not Susan. Susan's a go-getter, and so this project is very much the result of her initiative um, and our chemistry as a team. Um, but without her, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Well, this is a very unique partnership and it's a very effective one. And Isabel, you'd mentioned some of the uh, original inspirations you guys had. Are you talking about you know, the original plan to uh, kind of make this like a yearbook or history of IR? Yeah, so it really began as such, you know, I guess that was kind of what we were tasked with doing, but we saw very early on that the most important and impactful thing that we could do is not to speak within the IR community about IR, but to really speak to the public because we intuited as, you know, many of us do that nobody outside of our field really understands what's available um, through interventional radiology and so we took that opportunity and had enormous buy-in buy -in from the beginning to really shift our target audience from IRs to the public, and that's what we did. So how are you doing this? I mean, how do you really pick out your target audience? I mean, it's obviously it's a, a huge demographic here. You know, are there, are there specific you know, sections of the population you're trying to target, and, and how are you getting to these people? So, so this is where Susan's genius really shines, and um, this was not like some accidental thing. And so I'm going to let her explain to you how we came to our target audience. First of all, Without a Scalpel is a documentary series that is for everyone and has been enjoyed across many on-demand platforms by really a variety of audiences. For anyone who wants to access any of the on-demand platforms, they can just go to www.withoutascalpel.com and click on the link to the platform of their choice. Regarding your question about targeted audiences, when we did our research on healthcare consumers, we confirmed that women about the ages of 25 to 65 are predominantly the self-appointed healthcare decision makers for themselves and for their families. Our research included conducting our own surveys as well as reading other stories about healthcare consumers. So as primary healthcare decision makers, women do the majority of research about treatment of disease. They organize and participate in disease-specific support groups and really have a higher level of sharing about health-related topics on social media. So 
when we engage the public on social media, on our platforms, and in our theater screenings out in the public, we mostly target women and women's groups. Um, so we've been pleasantly surprised to hear of watch parties at medical schools, stories about viewings on airplanes, and we have direct inquiries via social media and email from audiences in other countries who have heard of Without a Scalpel. So I feel like our targeting of uh, the primary demographics for decision makers in families is spot on. Uh, but again, as I started this, this conversation, I think Without a Scalpel is for anyone who enjoys documentaries, medicine, or just wants to engage about patient stories. That's amazing. Um, so it's also, you know, it's going to be another big challenge trying to figure out what the topics will be. You know, this is a specialty that, that really encompasses something in virtually every part of the body for, you know, patients of all ages. How are you choosing your topics? So this is Isabel. So when we started uh, this project, you know, we it was originally going to be just one documentary, and then it quickly became a series because Susan doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> so she she recognized that you know the story of IR can't be told in one um, in one episode. So it became a, a multi um, episodic, and when you do that, you um, basically plan out your episodes by writing a series treatment. And a treatment basically describes each episode, um, gives kind of the structure of it, the arc, the planned types of patients, the theme, that sort of thing. And we ended up writing a, um, a series treatment for 20 episodes, 12 of which were our core episodes. So those have already been conceived of and iterated. And then as we are filming, um, most of the time we come in and we have two or three core patients identified, but then we leave space in our filming schedule to allow us to, to film patients who might appear, you know, on an emergent basis or urgent or some sort of serendipity. And that has allowed us to be very flexible and to get some of our best footage. How do you get the footage for the, the more emergent ones? So what we do is we film during the emergency, and then we get um, our consent afterwards. And only if the patient consents do we use the film. Otherwise, we destroy it. But our we feel com- very, very strong about uh, protecting um, patients' rights and patient privacy. And so um, we make it 100% up to the patient whether or not they want to be involved in this. We haven't had anyone refuse us um, to till now. Yeah, I mean, you've also been able to get some very passionate supporters from some of these patients. Now, how do you find the ones that are not emergent, you know, the more routine ones that you plan for? Is it the same process? Well, the physicians that we work with and, and you know, we, we cast our physicians very, very carefully. And part of the, the casting process means, you know, identifying physicians who can also identify good talent. And so we ask our physicians to help us identify some patients that, that meet certain criteria, like procedures that we're looking for or particular type of story. And they will um, give us some, you know, a list of potential patients who consent to speak with us. And then we interview those patients and through the interview process, determine whether or not the patient is a candidate. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And um, I think that the most, the thing we've felt gotten feedback from people who have watched it from the lay public is that they really identify with the patients and their stories. And so 
Um, while every patient's story is important and meaningful, um, some of these resonate more with people uh, watching these episodes than others. And so we really um, work with our physicians after we have selected them to help us with, with identifying those patients. And can you, can you tell me what's on the horizon? You know, what, what can we be looking for? What, what are some of your future projects? Episode four is in production right now. Uh, we'll give you a little spoiler alert. Uh, we filmed in, in Chicago and Denver, so we have a couple of locations represented there. And the subject matter there is focused on aneurysms and the potential fatal threat that they have for patients. You know, this is an episode, um, you know, whenever we film, we will capture patients from different locations, sometimes for different episodes, and we go through phases. So we're in, we are in the pre-production phase or the filming phase, or as we are right now in episode four in the post-production phase. And we're also in the um, kind of filming slash post-production phase on episode five, which focuses on uterine fibroid embolization. So the rate limiting step for us is not the creative process. It isn't really even filming because we've learned to navigate the opaque waters of working with, you know, regulatory systems within hospitals. The rate limiting step for us is funding. And so we go about as swiftly as we can um, with funding. We put out an episode at a rate of one per year since we began. And that's pretty quick considering that we do all of our own fundraising. Our initial seed money came from the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society. The officers back in 2014 for this organization were really quite visionary in understanding the significant impact and visibility that an initiative like this would have. And of course, we're grateful that they entrusted Isabel and I to such an important mission. The Interventional Initiative is a 501c3 organization that was born out of that call to action and the funding from the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society. Since then, we have received support from medical device companies at varying levels of participation and grant funding. Um, to see a list of those comp- uh, any of those companies that have contributed, our, your listeners can go to theii.org forward slash donate, and we have listed all of those companies there. We've also been overwhelmed by the support from interventional radiologists, other physician specialties, physician practice groups, and even individuals Uh, Many of our advisors to the II, we call them our wise owls, have provided funding support as well as other forms of non-monetary support, which we really appreciate. And then each of our board of directors has donated much of our own money and time uh, to this initiative as well. And then most importantly, we have people from the lay public who are just inspired by the series and our initiatives and thus have donated. One example that really touched me was the donation from a cameraman that we hired to do some filming for E5. And he was so inspired by what we, by what we were doing and by the physicians that he met that he donated a portion of his paycheck back to the II as a tax-exempt donation. And then subsequently, his wife's company matched the donation. So it's, it's really a, a, just a broad group of uh, sources that we have for funding and Uh, We're appreciative to everyone who uh, wants to support our mission. Fantastic. Uh, Now, for the average interventional radiologist, how can we get involved? Uh, I mean, I've got my nice interventional initiative, Scrub Cat, but for everyone else out there, you know, how can we help? 
You know, I really appreciate your asking that because, you know, as a community, we represent a small fraction of physicians in, you know, across the U.S., across North America, and across the world. But we could have a very powerful voice if we work together. And so one way to do that is to encourage your practices, you know, practices all the time, um, invest money or donate money to support causes that promote um, what we do. And, you know, many practices have already done that. They donate on a yearly basis to the interventional initiative. But the more practices that do that and the more individuals that do that, the more episodes we can produce and the more high quality materials that we can make. You know, we make infographics, short videos um, called Behind the Scrubs and Ask an IR. We have um, written materials. We have Huffington Post articles. We really are a multimedia enterprise but this has to be fueled by resources. So as individual IRs, if you are passionate about advancing IR to the public and making sure that people who could benefit from minimally invasive image-guided procedures can do so, then help us. And you can also help us for those of you who are young and just um, came out or those of you who are passionate and want to give us some elbow grease, join the interventional initiative and become a part of what we're doing. We could really use that too. It's exciting, and this is something that you know anyone in this field should be able to be excited to get behind. And I think if you know there's anything to be learned from the first lady's embolization procedure, if, if there, are, you know, we've got a long way to go to educate the public about what we do. Uh, you know, is this is this a challenge that you routinely face? You know, people not knowing what we do. Yes, it is a challenge, and the driving need for our documentary series and other initiatives. A common theme when we film these episodes is hearing from patients and their families that they've never heard of interventional radiology. They don't even know what an interventional radiologist does. Even more astounding is that we've met several marketing representatives from different hospitals where we film that also didn't realize the value of minimally invasive image-guided procedures until the day they worked following us through their hospital uh, during our day of filming. Um, and, and we learned many of them had never even watched an interventional radiology procedure before. And in my opinion, this is really a missed opportunity for hospitals to market to their communities what people actually want. And that's the most advanced treatment options without a scalpel. So that's been really an eye opener for us um, on that aspect as well. And our research. We recently published an article in JVIR um, which demonstrated this. We've, we've conducted surveys as well with the public, and so um, that, that our surveys basically underscore all of that. Uh, it, it is an, a challenge, and it's something that, that should be addressed, and, and we believe are addressing it. Uh, without a scalpel is just one way, but it needs to be reinforced with many other avenues, as, as Isabel mentioned, publications, uh, radio spots, social media, just continue to be ever visible. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a put a one feature documentary on the Discovery Channel next Sunday and then you're done. It, this is a continued mission and a continued uh, passion that we have um, to work on. So, you know, a really important thing that we haven't done as interventional radiologists, which has been to our detriment, is to agree on consistent language to describe what we do. And that basically 
ties our hands and makes it impossible to communicate to the public in a way that they can recognize because it's repetition, repetition that is what makes something so difficult to understand, like IR, um, become you know recognizable and mundane. Like many com- you know uh, concepts that are difficult can become that way through repetition. If you're not consistently referring to it in the same way with the same language, then you are really at a disadvantage. And so, you know, we have adopted the term minimally invasive image guided procedures, and that's what we repeat over and over. We're open to, you know, language that everybody decides on, but we need to have a consensus and we need to use that language. We need to all call ourselves the same thing. Um, Calling ourselves interventional surgeons uh, is a mistake in my mind. It actually ignores the value that we add, which is we are not surgery. We do things without surgery. It's precisely because it's not surgery that we're so special. So we need to all decide to call ourselves the same thing, to use the same language about how we describe our procedures so that patients can recognize and say, oh, that's that thing that I heard about that can make me better, that can keep me whole, that can send me home with a Band-Aid, that can do what surgery used to be done now through a pinhole. I'm sorry. We do reinforce those terms over and over again in our infographics, in our social media, in our documentary series, with, you know, not just without a scalpel, but also through a pinhole and Band-Aid and minimally invasive image-guided. So we do reinforce those terms over and over and over again, but the whole community reinforcing those um, just elevates the mission. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating point. I think you're absolutely right. It gave us, of course, the, the hashtag without a scalpel, which is, is kind of taking Twitter by storm. Who came Thank up you. with that? Thank you. That's, um, it's funny, like all of our things that we came up with, we came up with the, that name ourselves. And it was a brainstorming exercise that probably lasted about a week. And I still remember the piece of paper that I had with all the things that we thought about um, And it was just one of the titles that we threw around. And then what we did is we conducted a study. We we actually presented the top, I guess it was five candidates, to a, um, a sample group of the public and asked them what they found to be most appealing and without a scalpel one out. Yeah, we, we actually researched everything that we did along the way from the name to even the movie poster right. uh, and how we designed that. There were probably six different iterations of the movie poster that we were looking at. And so um, we spent time talking with experts in the documentary filmmaking world, experts in distribution on demand, uh, graphic artists, and people from the public to come to what is now our movie poster. Yeah, and, and the history of the movie poster is kind of funny because um, we have these concepts. So you approach, you know, these, these artists are very talented, and you approach them with, you know, kind of what you're about and what you're trying to convey. And, um, and our artists gave us different versions. One was a robot built with scalpels, which was fantastic, but looked absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, there, you know, there were others that, um, that, you know, were a little bit too soft. There's one that actually became our behind the scrubs um, image, which we really loved, but was not quite right for without a scalpel. So that when he um, presented us with this juxtaposition, which we actually asked for um, between the um, image of the um, gaming controller, and then these kind of archaic-looking um, uh, surgical instruments. 
um, we were like, that's where we want this. And so we, we, we said, we'd like some blood kind of interspersed throughout. And so when we showed some of our family, um, who's also in the medical community, um, they were like, we definitely need more blood on the bone saw. So then he added more blood on the bone saw. We went back to our, our study group and showed all the people, you know, who we were um, basically asking, you know, what whether they thought that this um, movie poster was going to work or not. And the first thing we got was like, whoa, way too much blood on the bone saw. So what you see now, the drops are what um, our, our focus group was able to tolerate in terms of the, the amount of blood, but we could have gone a whole lot bloodier. <laughs> It's incredible, though. I mean, and obviously, I knew there was a lot involved with this, and I've never made a movie before. But I mean, it's just incredible how much attention to detail and how many different elements have have come together to create this. And it's it's eye opening, and at the same time, you know, it's inspiring. And I, I know I can speak for you know, virtually the entire field in in thanking you both for the extraordinary time and effort that have gone into this. Um, is there anything else that I'm missing that you guys, you know, want to tell us about today? You know, first, thank you for that. Thank um, you. It, it seems, um, it seems so simple, but your what you just said really means a lot. Um, because we, we feel very passionate about this and every day we meet like-minded people who also feel passionate. And I think that we have the power to bring more minimally invasive image guided procedures to the public. And we all know about cases where people go untreated or they're treated with something that um, is not the right treatment for them because they just don't know their alternatives. And so if we all work together and support each other, and that's why we're so enthusiastic about what you're doing through Backtable, if we support each other and help augment our voices, I think we're really going to make big strides towards getting our voice out to the public. So the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society is a separate organization from the Interventional Initiative, but as we mentioned, has been a, a very strong supporter of the Interventional Initiative, and it's the organization that we were born out of uh, to make our documentary series. So there's a, a wonderful kinship there. The Western Angiographic and Interventional Society is celebrating its 48th anniversary this year, and it is one the second longest running interventional radiology society in the country. It has a rich history of keeping a very networking, casual style, but very high quality educational content um, to the conference. There are about 350 attendees each year. We keep it that size by design so that we can keep our, our networking format. Our, our, we do a lot of case studies, a lot of interactive M&M discussions at the conference, and people really like that and get a lot of value out of that conference. We're looking forward to Backtable being there this year for the first time. Um, I think our, our attendees will really enjoy having you guys there and Hopefully, you'll get a lot of value out of interacting with them as well, maybe doing some podcasts on site. And I have to say, you know, there are, um, my analogy is like, there are giant museums and they're fine, but then there are the, those like small gem museums where everything that you look at is just exquisite. And that's Western Angio. It's, you know, everybody's in the same room listening to the same talk and interacting before and afterwards. And for me, it's hands down the most fruitful meeting that I go to every year. And this year it's um, in October um, in Maui. So, you know, all the more reason to go. 
Uh, you ask us uh, kind of what else we want to tell you. Um, I'm gonna I'm going to pass this over to Susan for a minute. Oh, uh, this is this is kind of a fun story, and you can choose to use it or not. But it's it's one of the stories. Sort of our we have many stories like this, but early on when we were filming, we we had a very um, strong devotion to fiscal responsibility with our filming budget and and how to use our funds. We wanted to do as much as possible with the money that we were gifted and entrusted to. And so one of our first filming uh, ventures was filming Dr. Brooks Spencer in Littleton, Colorado. And so in an effort to save money on hotel costs, she invited us to stay at her house. And so we, you know, we ended up staying there and her house ended up being under construction. It was, (laughs) so there was limited space. And so she, uh, she and Isabel, who had just met, they didn't know each other very well, ended up sharing a a bed um, to sleep in. And I'll let Isabel tell the rest of the story from her perspective. Yeah. Okay. So there, this is how this goes down. So I had just taken the CAQs and I flew directly to Denver to do our first film shoot. And to me, you know, we cast Brooke. Brooke was the first physician we cast. She was a no brainer. We knew she would do great on, on film and she did. And, um, and part of my attraction to Brooke was, um, I had really just admired her. You know, I'd seen her in conferences speak and I was one of those puppy dogs who'd go up afterwards and try to ask her questions. And she would sort of be nice, but like probably had no idea who I was. Right. And so when we um, told her that we wanted to film her, that was maybe the first time that she had really met me. And then maybe the second time was when we crashed at her house um, after filming her. And you have to understand these film um, days are extraordinarily exhausting. So I just come from taking the boards, which was exhausting. And then, you know, we, we start usually at five or six in the morning and go, um, 10, 12, sometimes 14 hour days. And we come back and she looks at me, you know, she says, well, um, I, you know, I have a a guest bedroom in the basement, but it's flooded. So I have my office, Susan, you take the office and Isabel, do you want to sleep with me? And I looked at her and I'm like, what am I going to say to the, to Brooke Spencer? I'm like, with pleasure. So I (laughs) I decide (laughs) that I'm going to sleep with the great Brooke Spencer. And, you know, now we're like, you know, two girls at a slumber party. Um, however, I still haven't gotten over the fact that I just admired the, you know, the pants off of her. So I couldn't really, you know, calm down. So all night she's like sleeping next to me and she did, you know, we're in her little bed or whatever. And, um, and I can't relax. Cause I'm like, what if I make a weird sound or I like kick her or something, she, you know, she won't want to be filmed or maybe she'll never talk to me again. So right. finally fall asleep. And then I feel this soft touch on my shoulder and I go, Oh God, what's happening? Because she is very beautiful as you know. And I'm like, is this really going on? Because now this I think is going to end up being very, very sensational. And for a while I had this kind of conflicted. <laughs> I realized it was browning her cat and, and, and Brooke was very much asleep. <laughs> so I was exhausted. I didn't, a whole night, I was pretty sure we were going to, um, you know, have a very awkward encounter. And the next day we had a full day of filming. And when we came back, I, I passed out face down in her shag carpet right in front of the um, fireplace because I hadn't slept at all. 
Of course I so <laughs> I've heard this story by now, I hope. Yes, and now we're good. That might be too great <laughs> for your podcast, but it's one of our favorites. Yeah. Incredible. No, it's amazing. I'm so glad you told that story. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been eye-opening and exciting and expiring. And, you know, um, again, as I said, I can speak for everyone in thanking you for, for all of your time and effort Uh and thanks again to our listeners for joining us on Backtable. Again, check out our app. Uh, and, you know, you're going to see us tweeting about the Interventional Initiative and, and other ways that we can help these, you know, th- these great people who are helping our field. Thanks again, everyone, and, and we'll see you on the next one.